It's nice for the both doors to be open. As Lynn said uh, at the beginning of the service, for the past few weeks we've been following a series of talks entitled Explaining the Purposes of the Church. We've already looked at fellowship and discipleship, and today I'm going to focus on worship. But also, a little plug, next week David Lucas uh, will be talking on ministry. Uh, I think it's Capel next week, so it's an 11 o'clock service next week. And then the week after that, our pastor Ian Forsyth will be looking at evangelism. But I want to start, first of all, by telling a story. Now, this is a story of a young man who one day entered a stunningly beautiful cathedral. Now, this cathedral was so ornately decorated that the very sight of it could make a person with the hardest of hearts gasp and weep at the sheer beauty of the building. The young man made his way down the central aisle of the cathedral, but he found it surprisingly empty, except for one solitary worshipper who was bowing before a peculiar looking altar in prayer. And as the young man approached this worshipper, he quietly tapped him on the shoulder and asked, what, what, what does this altar configuration mean? The righteous man rose slowly and piously stated, my friend, this is my altar. Puzzled, the young man looked closer at the altar and instead of the cross, the righteous man had been praying before an altar with the letter I upon it, where the cross should be. It's a question we all have to ask ourselves from time to time, isn't it? Are we putting I, me, ourselves, before God? Now, I'm sure you all know what the first of the Ten Commandments is. Just a reminder, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. And when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert, Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Not just because he wanted the devil out of his life, but because he knew, being God, the devil had no place in front of him. God is omnipotent. And Jesus said, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he quoted from the passage in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 13. But the devil offered the whole world to Jesus if Jesus would only bow down and worship him. And today, the devil offers us the world, trying to entice us with things like materialism and power. And we all need to reflect from time to time our own lives to see if we've succumbed to temptation and put other things before God. Are you worshipping the Lord your God and serving him only? There are times in our Christian walk when we come to church and we expect personal biases of worship or style to be reflected 
in the service which we attend. And all the while we gripe and we complain and, dare I say it, sometimes we cause division within the church because it doesn't fit in with our personal worldview of worshipping God. Of all the 27 years I've been playing the piano, if I had a pound for every time somebody says, oh, I didn't like that song, or oh, I didn't like the words to that song, or, oh, why can't we sing so-and-so, I'd be very rich. <laughs> but let's consider what Jesus had to say about worship. Do you remember the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman who'd come down to the, draw water at the well and you can find this story and read about it in the Gospel of John at chapter 4. But to understand it better, you need to know that the Samaritans were despised and hated by the Jews. And because they were of mixed race, and therefore the Jews believed them to be impure. They were not allowed to worship in the main temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans had to set up an alternative centre for worship on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews would go to extra extraordinary lengths to avoid tra traveling through Samaria. But Jesus refused to be bound by such cultural restrictions because he knew that God wanted the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, to be heard by all nations. So, here we have at the well in Samaria, Jesus, a Jewish man, talking to a Samaritan woman and asking for a drink. The Samaritan woman was known for having led, shall we say, quite a colorful life. And Jesus starts to tell her about the living water. At first, she doesn't understand because she just thinks, oh, that's fine, I don't have to keep coming to the well to fill up the jug. I'll just have perpetual water. But Jesus then sees right into her heart and he hones in on the past mistakes and the sin in her life. And do you remember what she does? She starts to feel a bit uncomfortable at this point. She tries to change the subject. She starts to talk about worship. She says, Jesus, what about this worship thing? Where do you think we should worship? My people, referring to the Samaritans, worship over here. But your people, the Jews, say we have to worship in Jerusalem. What do you think, Jesus? And Jesus' answer is that there is a time coming when people will be able to worship wherever they want, however they want, as long as they worship in spirit and in truth. And that's the key, right there. Worship God in spirit and truth. Now, one of the greatest problems we have today with worship is the same problem we've, people have had throughout the centuries. We have a tendency to think and make worship mechanical. We think we need a certain type of building. We think we need a certain order of service, we think we need certain type of worship songs in a certain style and a certain tempo, and we think that in order to encounter God, we must approach him at a certain time, in a certain place, 
and on a certain day. But God isn't limited by our limited concepts of worship. He wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. God would rather hear sincere, heartfelt worship than routine ritual. And because we get caught up in methodology today, we face the same problems that worshippers have done throughout the centuries. We get stale. We come to worship and we're not changed. We come to worship and we're not challenged. We come to worship and we don't have an encounter with God. Worship can become liturgy rather than a life-giving experience. Jesus has told us he has come to give us life, but we must encounter him in a way that is pleasing to him. We need to find him, touch him, and then we will inevitably praise him. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's a verse from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. And it's talking about a true encounter of worship. It's talking about a continuous attitude of worship. Praise is to be our prevalent method of worship, an acknowledgement of God's presence. In the, old temple, oh, sorry, in the Old Testament, the fire on the altar in the temple was never to go out. It was to burn continually. It was never to be extinguished. And so too, our praise is to be con a continuous offering to God. But worship doesn't need to be restricted to singing or praising. Worship can be in the way we pray. Worship can be in the way we love and care for our fellow man or woman. Worship can be in our giving and in our generous hearts. Worship can be in the way we offer hospitality. Worship can be through the way we serve. Worship can be in the unrecognised and unseen acts of faithfulness which benefit others. Worship can be in the way we share the gospel and reach out into the community to bring the light of, and love of God into the lives of those around us. I could go on and on and on, but you get the idea. Living a worship-filled life should be a central plank of our daily living. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, giving thanks to his name. Now, I love the story in the Old Testament of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. You can find this story in the Bible in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, we might have a picture of him coming up. There he is, early photograph. <laughs> he probably didn't look anything like that, but... So King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king, he sets in place a new law. He erects an image of gold 90 feet high by 9 feet wide. 
Can you imagine that? I mean, just in that blazing sun, just the gold reflecting off, it just would have blinded people in a way. And then he issues a command. He says that when the sound of the horn, flute, zyre, uh, sorry, horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other kinds of music are to be heard, then everyone must fall down and worship the golden image. Whoever refused to do so would be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace to die. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made their stand and refused to bow the knee. And defiant before the king, they declared, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So incensed with rage, Nebuchadnezzar orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. And in fact, the furnace became so hot that even the men who threw Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego into it were killed. And as Nebuchadnezzar sat down to watch the death of these men, he saw a sight that startled him. Rising to his feet, he asked his advisers, weren't there three that we tied up and threw into the fire? Look, I see four men walking around, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So approaching the furnace, or at least as close as he could get without getting burnt himself, King Nebuchadnezzar said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And to everyone's bewilderment, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked free, unharmed, not even the smell of burning on them. Stirred by this miracle, King Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to their God who has sent an angel and rescued his servants. In the face of death, these three men chose to worship the one true God. At great cost to themselves, they chose to honour God. God intervened and rescued them from certain death. And as a result, God's name was glorified. But it would have been equally glorified if they had died for their faith, as they were clearly prepared to do. This leads me on to a story of Graham Staines. Graham Staines was an Australian missionary. Graham Staines is on your right. He'd spent 34 years of his life working amongst the lepers in India, educating the young and spreading the good news of the gospel. One day in January 1999, Graham and his two young sons were working amongst the poorest of the poor in a local village. And with nowhere to sleep, they found shelter in their van. But during the night, Hindu extremists surrounded the van and chained the handles of the doors shut. They set the van on fire and fled. Echoes of Shadrach, 
Meshach and Abednego. What would God do? Would he rescue them from the fiery furnace and glorify his name? When the fire finally cooled, rescuers found the charred body of Graham Staines with his arms wrapped around the bodies of his sons. Through all his many years of faithful service, Graham Staines had only endeavoured to serve the poor and help those in need. Left behind to mourn were Graham's wife and daughter, Gladys and Esther. Now, immediately, the Indian media descended upon Gladys's doorstep to capture her reaction. Her response was quoted in every newspaper across India, a nation of one billion people, the following morning. And this is what she said. I have only one message for the people of India. I am not bitter, neither am I angry. But I have one great desire, that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. In that moment, the gospel message was proclaimed throughout the nation as Gladys chose to forgive, to honor God, and ultimately to worship God. God was glorified and a nation was profoundly impacted. Someone once wrote that God seldom calls us to an easier life, but always calls us to know more of him and drink more deeply of his sustaining grace. In every situation that comes our way, our role is to center our lives around Christ and to allow him to glorify his name in and through us. In every trial of life, in every circumstance, through battles and blessings, it is Christ in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're not called to muster up superhuman strength. God doesn't leave us on our own to fight his corner. We're called to surrender our lives to him, holding nothing back, allowing access to all areas of our lives. He is the all-powerful God, mighty to act, the God who has the whole world in his hands. It's as we say yes to him, following his ways, no matter the cost, that we will see God's transforming resurrection power. You see, God can open up doors that we think are shut. God can turn circumstances and situations upside down. That's how God works. I want to tell you another remarkable story, this time about a, a Victorian gentleman called George Muller. George Muller lived between 1805 and 1898. He was German, or Prussian to be technically accurate, by birth. He became an evangelist and moved to Britain 
There he is, a bit like a Victorian Captain Birdseye. <laughs> Taken rather sort of in his later stages of life. But he came to Britain, founded several orphanages, and uh, he cared for as many as 2,000 children. Eventually, he became the director of the very large orphanage at Ashley Down outside Bristol. And one night, Muller was informed that the supply of food was gone at one of the orphan houses. The next morning, he joined the children for breakfast. And there is a bowl, a plate, and a glass in front of each of several hundred children. But all were empty. So, Mr. Muller asked the children to bow their heads as he prayed. And his words included, Father, we thank you for what you are going to give us to eat. After he ended the prayer, there was a knock at the door. A baker was standing there who said, I couldn't sleep last night. I, I felt you didn't have any bread. And the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at two o'clock this morning and baked some fresh bread for you. George Muller not only thanked the baker, but also said a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And within a few minutes, there was a second knock at the door. There was a milkman standing at the door. He explained that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the home. The milk had to be unloaded and he wanted to give it to the home for the children. Could you take it, he asked. George Muller knew that to truly worship God, he needed to turn over to the Lord the problem of the hungry orphans. The Lord would provide. And there's a lesson in this for us. We too can worship God in spirit and truth when we turn over to the Lord the resources he's given us. He will use those resources to further his kingdom in ways that we cannot understand. During his life, George Muller cared for 10,000 orphaned children in Bristol. He never made appeals for money, trusting implicitly in God. He received £1,500,000 in answer to prayer. This is in an era where there's no government funding for these children's homes. There's no social services. At present day prices, 1,500,000 equates to well over 86 million pounds. God can do great things. God is able. God is big enough. Incidentally, don't ever think that you're too old or too young or not good enough or not capable enough to be used by God in marvellous ways. Because George Muller, at the age of 70, felt led by God to devote the next period of his life to a worldwide ministry of preaching and teaching, sharing his Christian faith. So leaving the orphan homes under the direction of his daughter Lydia and her husband, George Muller spent the next 17 years travelling during which time he toured the United States of America four times, India twice, and on two further occasions toured Australia and the colonies. 
In addition, George Muller preached in 42 countries, including China and Japan. And in an age when you could only get around by foot, horse, boat or train, George Muller travelled over 200,000 miles during 17 years of missionary travel, addressing more than 3 million people. He did all this because he worshipped God, the God that can move mountains. God making the impossible, God making possible, sorry, what to us seems impossible. There's one, another story. In 1875, the captain of a steamboat called the Sardinian was crossing the Atlantic to Canada. And when the boat was suddenly caught in a very thick fog. And in those days, without the benefits of radar or satellite navigation, the only thing to do was to stop the boat and inch extremely slowly forward and very cautiously. The captain had been on duty on the bridge for 22 hours, constantly issuing orders to his crew in an attempt to find a way out of the fog. Suddenly, the captain felt a tap on his shoulder and startled, he turned around to see George Muller standing there. Captain, he said, I've come to tell you that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. This was Wednesday. It's impossible, said the captain. Very well, said George Muller. If your ship can't take me, God will find other means to take me. I have never broken an engagement in 57 years. The captain said, look, I'm willingly happy to help you, but how can I? I'm helpless in this fog. George Muller said, let's go down to the chart room and pray. And the captain continues, he says, I looked at that man of God and I thought to myself, what lunatic asylum could that man have come from? I never heard such a thing. Mr. Muller, I said, do you know how dense the fog is? No, he replied, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He got down on his knees and prayed one of the most simple prayers. And the captain mutters to himself, that prayer wouldn't even suit a children's class with the children not more than eight or nine years old. And the burden of his prayer was something like this. Oh Lord, if it's consistent with your will, please remove this fog in five minutes. You know the engagement you'd made before me in Quebec on Saturday, and I believe it's your will. The captain said, when he finished, I was going to pray, but George Muller put his hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. Muller said, first, you do not believe he will, and second, I believe he has. And there is no need, whatever, for you to pray about it. I looked at him and George Muller said this, Captain, I have known my Lord for seven years, sorry, for 57 years, and there's never been a single day that I have failed to gain an audience with the King. Get up, Captain, open the door, and you will find the fog is gone.
the captain got up, opened the door, and the fog was gone. The captain says, you tell that to some people of a scientific turn of mind, and they say, well, that's not according to natural laws. No, it's according to spiritual laws. The God we worship is omnipotent. Hold on to God's omnipotence. Ask believingly. And on that Saturday afternoon, I may add that George Muller was there in Quebec on time. One last story. Helen Rosevere, Dr. Helen Rosevere, was a missionary who served out in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And she tells this story. One night in what's now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo, where she worked as a missionary and a doctor, a mother was in labor. And in spite of all that we did to help her, she died leaving us with a tiny premature baby and her crying two-year-old daughter. We had difficulty keeping the baby alive with no electricity to run an incubator and no special feeding facilities. And although we lived on the equator, nights were often chilly and treacherous drafts. A student midwife brought the box we used for babies along with the cotton wool that the baby would be wrapped in. Another went to stoke up the fire and fill our only hot water bottle. But she came back shortly later in distress to tell me that the rubber had burst. Apparently rubber perishes easily in tropical climates. All right, I said, put the baby as near to the fire as you safely can. Your job is to keep the baby warm. The following noon, she went to pray with many of the local orphan children who chose to gather with her daily. And Dr. Rosevear gave the youngsters various suggestions of things to pray about. And she told them about the tiny baby and her little orphan sister. And during the prayer time, a child called Ruth, who was 10, prayed with the usual blunt consciousness of a child. Please, God, send us a water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow, God. The baby will be dead. So please send it this afternoon. Dr. Rosevear gasped at the audacity of the prayer. And then the child continued, and while you're about it, would you please send a dolly for the little girl so that she'll know that you really love her? Dr. Rosevear says, could I honestly say amen? I just did not believe that God could do this. I know that he can do everything. The Bible says so, but there are limits, surely. She'd been in Africa for almost four years at that time and had never, ever received a parcel from home. But later, that afternoon, she found a large package on the veranda. She felt tears pricking her eyes. She could not open it alone and sent for the children. And together they pulled the string and carefully undoing each knot. The excitement was mounting as 30 or 40 pairs of eyes focused on the large cardboard box. And from the top 
I lifted out brightly coloured knitted jerseys and eyes sparkled as I gave them out. Then there were the knitted bandages for the leprosy patients. And then the children began to look a little bored. As I put my hand in again, I felt, could it really be? I grasped it and it poured it out. Yes, a brand new hot water bottle. Ruth, the child that prayed the prayer, rushed forward crying out, if God has sent the bottle, he must have sent the dolly too. And rummaging to the bottom of the box, she pulled out the small, beautifully dressed dolly. Her eyes shone. She had never doubted that God would answer her prayer. Looking up at me, she asked, can I go with you and give this dolly to that little girl so she'll know that Jesus really loves her? And that true story is a powerful reminder of our Father's love and commitment towards us. The Father who gave everything that we might know life in all its fullness. Holding nothing back, the Father delights in us. He sings over us. He chases after us. He cares deeply about us and sent his only son to die for us. And what is our only possible response to this extravagant love? To hold nothing back ourselves, but to give our all and to worship God in spirit and in truth. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are worthy of praise. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth. Forgive us for the times when we have put ourselves and other things in our lives first and you second. Help us to make our whole lives an act of worship to you. Give us the courage to pray boldly and not timidly, sure in the knowledge that you are the one true God who is worthy of our praise and worship. Amen.